0: Welcome to
1: The Hero's Journey, a podcast that explores the lives, challenges, and triumphs of some of our planet's greatest activists. I'm Ashley Lukens, your host and your guide, as we wander across our digitally connected planet and learn just what people are doing to make this world a better place. From lawyers to chefs, students to elders, this podcast is as much about strategy as it is about hope and inspiration. When it comes to overcoming the impossible, sometimes you have to see it and hear it to believe it. Welcome back, everybody, to the hero's journey. You've made it this far, and we are so happy to have you back here. In this episode, I interviewed Helena botmiller evich um, who started Food Safety News, then went to Politico, and now has founded her own publication, Food fix. We start with a conversation about the infant formula debacle, and that edges over into conversations about liberal arts education, deep thinking, and about how the anemic media landscape is helping to divide our communities. And we end with a conversation about what the medicine might be to bring folks back together to work on hard issues. I hope you enjoy. I just moved. I'm sitting in like an empty half kitchen. So I feel you. You just make yeah. it work.
0: You do. You make it work. So where are you? You're in Hawaii? Yeah, I work from Honolulu, but I work
1: for the Center for Food Safety. And, you know, we have offices all over yeah. Including D.C. I was just in D.C. this summer. Um, I love yeah. D.C., it has to be one of my favorite us cities
0: it's it's a great oh there's my cat he wants in um <laughs> he's pretty quiet i'll let him in but um yeah it's great it's a great place to live um you know when there's not an insurrection yeah <laughs> it's been a really crazy place to live yeah god i didn't even think about that yeah i live Um, I don't know how familiar you are with Capitol Hill, but I live, um, in Southeast right off Potomac. So I live kind of between where the, um, the armory is where the national guard is stationed. So for like months, the, um, the, the buses, the, the armed vehicles, armored vehicles, all were going behind my house, like hourly to switch out the, National Guard. Like it was actually like living in a like militarized zone in a in a in a controlled way. Obviously, there was not active, you know, stuff happening the whole time, but it was just very weird. Where yeah. were you on January 6th? Um, I was at home. My husband though works on the hill. I'm like
1: bracing myself for November. Um well,
0: you know, I think November's gonna be really weird. I think there's going to be some weird. It's my only prediction I'm making. It's going to be weird. Like I think there's. Shit's <laughs>
1: been weird, Helena. So yeah.
0: <laughs> so I'll tell you a little bit about the podcast,
1: and I'd love to start with infant formula because, by the grace of the goddess, I was able to breastfeed, but I. Um. Used to own a retail store that supported families that were making what at that time, my daughter's 13. So it does, I I feel like my early childhood references are a little dated, whatever, natural choices and, um, had a lactation consultant inside of the store. And so really was up close and personal with like how hard it is for some women to breastfeed and how desperate they were for healthy formula choices and really feeling like there weren't tools in the toolkit. Now my daughter ages out of that period. And like all aspects of motherhood, I sort of had amnesia about it. And then I started hearing these like trickles into my worldview that there was a formula shortage. And I felt like crisis of capitalism that like we can't support women to breastfeed, but we also can't maintain a healthy supply chain to feed babies. It's such a deep, profound market-driven paradox. I was really like, I just sort of dumbfounded. And I know you sort of started the food fix From this place of wanting to get more clarity around infant formula.
0: Yeah. The infant formula situation has, I feel like taught us a a lot of lessons, right? Like there's the, the government failure angle and like the slow food safety response. There's the light that it's shown on exactly what you're talking about. Like how little support, uh, women in the U S have to, to breastfeed if they want to, or can. Um, and then that immediately really reminds us how reliant we are, not just as like moms and parents and caregivers, but like as society, as a society, we are reliant on infant formula. And it's this thing that we really took for granted that it would just always be there. And, um, we've really stress tested that and we only have a few players. It's not just a market-based failure, but it's also like there are questions about what, you know, what role po- federal policies have played in that, in keeping that market really concentrated. There's four players that control about 90% of the market. And really there's two that control the vast, vast majority are so, the majority. So, you know, we have Abbott and Mead Johnson and we, I think are talking about thinking about reflecting on formula as a country now in a way that we never have that. I mean, in decades, right. We just, we just have taken it for granted. It's just been there. We don't really talk about it. And as a food policy reporter, I don't think I've written a single story about infant formula. I don't think I had just focused on infant formula. I don't think I'd written the story in 10 years I mean, there just there just wasn't really anything going on, and then this hits, and it's like, I'm getting a crash course in every piece of it. Like, yeah, it's there are a lot of a lot of takeaways here, and um, seeing parents get really plugged into this and really upset has been really interesting too.
1: I want to take a moment and just sort of like. Think about that moment where you as a food policy reporter, me, I did my PhD in food policy. I think deeply about food systems. I work for the Center for Food Safety, and yet I too have somehow de-linked breastfeeding and infant formula from the food industry conversation. And so I'm wondering if you can help me understand how federal policy has helped drive the concentration of the infant formula market. Because we know we're seeing concentration in all aspects of our food supply chain. But like, what is the infant formula supply chain look like?
0: It's a really good question. I think... um there are a couple of of factors at play here. Well, first, I think backing up, you're absolutely right that we we don't talk about infant formula as part of like this broader food policy conversation. And I really think that part of that has been kind of two things, like the taking for granted, that'll just always be there. And also, frankly, there is um, also a lot of bias against formula and and a lot of that has been born out of some like you know a history of questionable marketing tactics it has been born out of a place where there is legitimate criticism to be had for some of the behavior but also you end up in a place then where the pendulum can kind of swing so far that parents are ashamed to say they're using formula even when they need it and is absolutely an essential tool for feeding you know, children and not just children, but also people with special medical needs, like formulas used for a lot of different things. So I think there's kind of two things. It's like the, you know, we took it for granted. And also we, we can't, we have a stigma around it. We really do. And that's also a piece that I've seen kind of talked about more during this shortage. A lot of formula feeding parents have come forward and been like, look, like we shouldn't, have to go through this. It shouldn't be this stressful. We shouldn't have stigma around it. Like there's lots of reasons people don't or can't um, breastfeed, chest feed, use human milk, whatever term you're going to use. I mean, there's just a lot of reasons. There's health issues. There's mental health issues. uh, There's lack of paid leave. There's maybe you don't want to, uh, maybe your child has an allergy or some sort of health issue. It just doesn't work. And I mean, there's just so many reasons and like, you don't have to have a reason, right? Like people should be able to make those personal choices just like anything, right? Just like how you feed your family. So I just want to
1: jump in really quick yeah, and say that yeah. I remember when my daughter breastfeeding was the hardest thing I'd ever done at
0: that Yeah, point. it's it I mean, was hard. And I I also had a very positive overall experience. And I still think it is way harder <laughs> than people.
1: Totally. Understand. Yeah. And I was like, why did I just take eight weeks of birthing classes for like one day of my life. And I went in, my mom was like, it's like a plug and a socket. You're just going to put the baby on your boob and you're going to breastfeed. So that's what I thought. Yeah. And it was a, I mean, when I finished my PhD and everybody's like, I can't believe you did that. I was like, this is nothing compared to breastfeeding. Yeah. that psychobiological sinking that needs to happen for a
0: letdown is like something. Anyway, I mean, I could talk for the well, next yes, it is. I was so thankful that I actually had had a really good friend who had had a baby right before my son was born. And she told me that, um, breastfeeding was more painful than giving birth. And I was so thankful that she had told me just that there, that it could be very painful, that that's something you could expect because it really sort of tempered my expectations around. You hear that a lot, like, Oh, it's just, it just happens. It's easy. And it is easy for some people. And and I think like everyone deserves more support, like lactation consulting. Um, you know, my insurance company still owes me money from not paying for Cigna. If you're out there seriously shame on you because they're they, they wouldn't reimburse my lactation consulting, which is probably a violation of the ACA, man. You're too tired to figure any of this out. Totally. Time, right. So, so everyone deserves more support for sure. But I also think it's, it's hard because the public health, um, the public health, uh, establishment really wants to promote breastfeeding and you understand why. Um, so I think sometimes we tend to downplay the difficulties because we don't want to scare people from trying or from, you know, seeking that support. So it's really hard, I think, to get the nuance right here, which is that yeah. want to support parents who want to do this and who can and who um, need support. But we also don't want it to be something that you do that's at the expense of your mental health or your family's financial health, or maybe just doesn't work logistically. Like if you have a, if you're a nurse, it's a lot harder to pump on a 12 hour shift than if you're working at home remotely. And you can just like turn your camera off on Zoom. I mean, these are just different scenarios. If you're working three shifts at a fast food restaurant, I, you're logistically at a huge disadvantage to to making that work. And I think we need to like talk about that more. So yeah, yeah. There's, just, there's a lot. Oh, I can talk about this all day. <laughs> yeah. Me too,
1: me too, me too. And yet, yeah, I mean, it, it sort of shifts to this moment where you as a reporter, as a woman, as a mother, start to see a story emerging for you. And what role do you think the media plays in helping to shift the conversation, bring important data into the forefront? I mean, we're at this moment in history where there's, unfortunately, the truth is up for debate. And yet, we still need reporters to do the good, hard work of understanding complexity and, and and distilling it in these sort of bite size. So, obviously, the infant formula debacle. I don't know what a crisis. Don't know what. To no, call I think debacle is fair. Yeah, <laughs> drove you to want to start an entirely new publication. So that tells me a little bit about something about the current mediums we have right now to communicate. So tell me a little bit about that moment where you as a yeah. writer is like, yeah, this
0: yeah. issue is so complex. I have to find my own way. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. And I I do want to clarify that in some ways, the infant formula debacle, I am using that term because I think it's, I think it's totally fair here. Um, actually actually it actually did not drive my decision to leave however it delayed my decision i stayed longer than i thought at politico because as that story was developing no one was covering it like other outlets for months were not treating it as this major national story and i saw that and as a parent and as a reporter i was like this is not good right and i had a lot of reporting that i wanted to get out and like i had this incredible platform at Politico and great editors. And, you know, so I stuck around longer to see, to see that through, I'd actually already decided to leave before that had happened. So I don't, I don't think a lot of people know that, but just the backstory, um, for why I'm launching food fix, food fix is actually that I think that food policy deserves like a focused place where you are just looking at food policy, and I came to really see this need when I was covering food policy at a more generalist publication that, you know, covers tons of different issues. I think we had like over a hundred different newsletters. We had more than 25 or something policy areas. So it's like everything from cybersecurity to health to tech. To, I mean, all the things, right? And for whatever reason, food policy has just not been seen as a beat worth investing in from. Uh, the more like mainstream news outlet. and I'm not saying it's not some conspiracy. It's just they just don't see it as like something that you need to cover, right? It's not a it's not on par with education. You would never not have like an education policy reporter or, or financial services or whatever. But food is just seen as this niche topic. And it's always struck me as so weird. and Obviously I have a bias because I think it's so important. I've spent the last more than decade of my career covering these issues. And so I think it's really important, but it's it's always puzzled me a little bit just because food is so universal. I mean, we we have, we all eat every day. We have this, we all have like a lot of opinions about it. We have a lot of culture wrapped up into it. And more so than we do probably like what's going on with like Wall Street or whatever, all these other institutions we would never not cover. Um, so that that part has always sort of befuddled, befuddled me, but it's, but it's been that way my entire um, career. Like I would go to House Agriculture Committee hearings and it would be like about big topics, like the farm bill, which, you know, affects tens of millions of people and like our entire agricultural policy. And there would be like not a single quote, mainstream national outlet there. So just to give you a sense. So, um, and unfortunately at Politico, they were, you know, they'd shrunk the team. And so there was just a lot of directional things going on there that, um, I really saw a lane to be filled and really to focus in. And it's been going great. I am, um, not only trying to serve like the folks who work in food policy. So like folks like at your organization, or, you know, if you work in the industry, or if you work for a law firm and you work on these issues, like maybe you're a regulatory attorney, you know, people who work in these issues, I am, um, they're part of my readership, right? Those are the folks that are more likely to like pay for um, more like sort of detailed insider coverage where it's not really as probably interesting to a mainstream, but then I can, a mainstream audience. But then I can take that and I still have a free audience that's you know thousands of people at this point, and that's interested consumers. That's parents. That's where nurses are plugging in. That's where a dietitian from a hospital is plugging in, because they might care about the infant formula shortage, or they might be like, you know what, I actually really care about dietary guidelines, and like, why aren't we talking about sustainability or why aren't we telling people to eat less or whatever their issue is that they're just kind of interested in i'm hoping that it's a place where really highly uh interested consumers can also plug in right there isn't really a place that's just for that um better, and i'm finding that there's you know i'm finding that there's both that i can do both audiences i absolutely can affirm your observation
1: that there is a dearth of really well-informed, like thinkers in the journalistic megasphere that can write about food in all the ways. And um, part of me feels like that is related to um, how food has been traditionally sort of relegated as a feminine sphere and it's like women are interested that's a women's issue and I mean take infant formula that's like the woman's issue of the woman's issue of the woman's issue so yeah. it's not yeah. yeah and so that's my one sense is that it it's we know that the mediascape is dominated by men and that men's interest drives and and your field is oftentimes driven by personal interest and most investigative journalists are men. And that's so that I, I'm thinking that and, and appreciating your decision to take action around it and create a medium where we can actually start to do that and support yeah. the doing of that. And I'm yeah. also feeling like the the Major corporations that benefit from the lack of investigative reporting, um, probably like, I mean, there are large corporations that benefit from the fact that nobody's doing the sort of macro storytelling around food, you know, I mean, whether it's around pesticides or failures at the FDA, when journalists det- decide to take on some of the big food, there are real consequences to pay in terms of advertising. And food companies play such a powerful role in advertising. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm wondering too, if publications are like,
0: I just don't want to get in the weeds on that. We don't have great business models for sustainable journalism. And like, that is really the, the, the soul of the issue, the, the core of the issue, because, you know, in theory, you would have really strong local news. And they would be covering things like if it's pesticide drift or if it's a local fight over, you know, zoning or um, fighting, you know, let's say it's like somebody wants to build a a CAFO or like whatever it is, like you're also not getting that. And that's because of like failing business models. And I think that's a huge challenge like for the country generally. Um, It's not just a problem for... Like food policy, but like all areas. So, and I think investigative journalism in general is so expensive. So, they, there's just a real hesitation around investing in that because, you know, resources are often scarce. So, you cut out a little bit.
1: So, I want to reflect back to you what I heard just so we can summarize it. What I heard is that, you know, part and parcel of the issue we're sort of touching on is the failure for us to find. Um, business models around media and journalism that serve the role that media plays in our political system. And one example of that is the loss of real local investigative journalists that can help folks understand what happens when these macro issues touch the ground in their
0: backyard. Yes. Yeah. And generally the less coverage you have like just the less accountability you have and it, it it happens at all levels it's something I think about a lot I think it's a huge 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 problem yeah
1: so let's go back like did you want to be an investigative journalist your whole life like when did this I mean talk about a thankless career in this moment in time when journalists are getting attacked for um trying to do the good work of letting us know what's happening in our backyard. What was your journey into journalism?
0: I I am a, a very strange reporter in that I'm an accidental journalist. So I did not go to journalism school. I did not set out to be a reporter. And because of when I entered the workforce, which was 2009, so the middle of the worst part of the Great Recession, or the, you know, the beginning of it, I guess, Um, because of the timing of when I entered the workforce, most of my peers, if they went into journalism at that time, like they were very specifically, like they had wanted to be a reporter since they were like six, right? Because you went in knowing like the industry is imploding, half of, you know, all reporters have been laid off. And I mean, the implosion of like the workforce and journalism has been really stark so if you went into it, despite all of that, again, you were like really, really on board. But I, I actually fell into it because I had I, I studied government at Claremont McKenna College down in California, and you had to do a thesis to graduate, even undergrad. And I wrote my thesis on um, FDA during the Bush administration and sort of this big shift that had happened during that time when essentially... Um, the administration went from a more deregulatory stance to thinking that actually the food system needed some basic food safety regulations at the federal level. And that was mainly driven by like a massive 2006 E. Coli outbreak and a really, really big um, melamine pet food debacle that like truly, truly lit up the country. I mean, if you think people um, care, well, our country doesn't really care about kids in terms of policy. People really care about their pets, though. Like this this is something like don't mess with people's pets, right? So we had a series of sort of incidents late in the Bush administration. It really caused this major pivot towards more discussion around federal regulation. And that really actually fed into how we got FISMA. And so anyway, that's what I did my thesis on. And I say that because that thesis is is how I ended up in journalism because I... I Interviewed a bunch of people for my thesis. Like I got questions answered from Marion of who, you know, wrote food politics and is very well known in this space. Um, I remember uh Dave Plunkett, who was the food safety attorney at CSPI, like gave me an interview. People were so generous with their time. And then one of the people I interviewed was a food safety lawyer named Bill Marlar, who you may be familiar with. Um he is like a top plaintiff's attorney who does a lot of foodborne illness litigation. And his firm is from Seattle, or is based in Seattle, Marler Clark, and I'm from Seattle. So when I interviewed him for my thesis, I was like, you know, I didn't know you could be in food law. Like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Like, can I come shadow you? Or I don't remember exactly how it went down, but he was like, sure. Like, call me when you graduate. So I ended up interning um, at that food law firm over the summer And then I was going to leave to go move to D.C. And I thought I was going to, like, I don't know, work on the Hill or something. I really did not have a plan. I just want to emphasize that. And I tell this story to everyone who asks me, like, how do you get into food policy? Because it's not a straight line. I did not, like, intend for this. I didn't plan this out. So I'm going to move to D.C. at the end of the summer, have it all planned out. And um, then I found out that the the law firm was actually launching a spinoff publication called Food Safety News. And the reason that was being launched is because Bill Marler, the lawyer who um, ran that law firm, so many of the reporters that he was used to talking to about food safety and these other issues or health issues had been laid off. And he was like, wait a minute, who's going to cover this stuff, right? Like, who am I going to read? And so they decided to launch the spinoff. They hired a longtime um, newspaper editor from Eastern Washington, Dan Flynn, who's actually still there. And um, they just let us have, you know, have at it. And I started covering the run-up to the Food Safety Modernization Act being passed in Congress through Food Safety News. So basically they were like, we're launching this spinoff. You're moving to DC anyway. Do you want to like try to write for the site? And as a, I don't know, I was like 22 and somehow they trusted me to do that. And that's how I fell into journalism. And it just happened to be a really good time because FSMA was being debated on Capitol Hill. And then six months after I um moved to DC, First Lady Michelle Obama launched Let's Move. So then we were also talking about childhood obesity and we were talking about health and we were talking about food in sort of all these different ways. And so I think had I moved to DC at a different time, it might not have like really worked in terms of what was going on. But um yeah, it was a very, very roundabout uh road to ending up in, in food policy and it's been really um rewarding i'm not I, it still amazes me that like more than a decade in i'm still learning a lot like the food system's incredibly complex and so nobody has this figured out and i think that's one of the things that um keeps it inter- interesting for me this many years into it so something that's come up
1: Um, throughout our interviews for the podcast is this recognition of the role that college plays in the formation of activist identities and worldviews. And I'm also a liberal arts educated woman. And I'm wondering, like, those of us who have liberal arts degrees generally also have meandering career paths because we, at least back in the early aughts, were not given like career advice. I mean, I was a women's studies and economics major. And I remember my dad was like horrified, Um, <laughs> but i continue to rely on those skills of deep thinking. And I'm not interested in what's right. I'm interested in understanding. And I'm just wondering, like, how your degree resourced you as you meandered towards what is now a really meaningful decade-long career in a space that didn't exist as a major when you were in school?
0: Yeah. Well that that's such an interesting question. So so CMC where I where I went to school is a liberal arts school for for sure, but it's a little bit of a, a weird one in that it's it has a very very um, overt and explicit focus on like practicality. So uh you know, a lot of the major, you know, we still have to take a lot of the same classes that make I think a more well-rounded sort of college experience but a lot of the students there at least when I was there tended to be in quote more practical more I'll use the term practical because like that's up for debate but more practical um uh degrees like or majors like gov or econ or finance or whatever so so with that like little caveat but I'll just say, um, my
1: queer theory class has come in more handy in in the past five years yeah. than my calculus class. That's for damn oh. sure.
0: Oh, I, I hated calculus the most and I had to take it. Like I literally had to take calculus and it was the kind of calculus where you can't use calculators. I still, it was my least favorite class. No, <laughs> yeah, I, I, like, like I think some of my, honestly, like one of my one of the classes that sticks out to me the most, I mean, there's a few, but one of them is, was actually like political philosophy, like kind of the, the, how you come up with a consistent sort of governing philosophy or like when the government should and shouldn't like be involved. And we would look at things like smoking bans and, you know, polygamy and seatbelt laws and like it actually turns out that to have like a consistent governing philosophy, well, it turns out no one does, right? Because all of these, <laughs> these laws are based on like how we feel about something. I'm right? having well, like, like so COVID good.
1: vaccine
0: debate feelings to- right now. Totally. So it, anyway, those kinds of things. Yes. I think thinking about recognizing that things are like complex and, and also that like Nothing happens in a vacuum. And like you said, it's not just a it's not black and white. It's not, you know, being overly simplistic is like o- almost always like a bad path to go down. I think all of that is definitely um like those are good lessons to take away from like a liberal arts education. Um, but but it's been interesting to think to think back because I was really um kind of strange in that. I was interested in food policy because we didn't have like any classes. I mean, I think the other schools in the Claremont um, colleges now have classes about like food policy and anthropology and like, you know, you can take history and um, there's a lot more offering there. And I get a lot of students actually from the Claremont colleges reaching out to me. And I think back to like how I couldn't even find a thesis advisor. I had a healthcare policy thesis advisor because nobody was gonna be like food what what um so i don't know i think that like branching out kind of going following your interests and you know seeing where it leads you i think these are all kind of tenets of of that kind of education um but i don't know i i also got to um intern in dc i did a semester in dc when i was in college and I think that also helped kind of open my eyes to like the realities of policymaking and how messy it can be and how, um, you know, fraught and (laughs) like it takes, I think it takes a lot of time and thought and skill and also patience to really try to understand this stuff Um, and oversimplifying it is not going to, not going to get you far. I mean, so that's interesting. I haven't really thought about like how that played a role, but
1: I think. I mean, what an illustrative moment in your own biography that you work for an attorney who litigates on food safety issues on behalf of the people. And this law firm decides that a news publication is critical to their success, it really helps us start to understand how these different sectors or institutions or spaces in our society are actually also interlinked in change-making. Like, what role do you think Food Fix or Food Safety News has to play in policymaking?
0: Well, I mean, I think, I think in some ways what Marler Clark did with food safety news and what, you know, other groups have done. I know, um, I think it's EWG has their own like outlet now, you know, the reason that is happening is because of this vacuum, right? Because of all the failing business models, because there's a dearth of coverage. So like, I understand why that's happening, but it's actually suboptimal to have groups or attorneys. or, I mean, and I'm not saying anything, you know, bad about the work that these groups do. I worked there for a long time. I think food safety news plays like a really important role in keeping people updated on a lot of these issues. Like, but it is not ideal to have media tied to certain entities or particularly, you know, especially if they have an interest. I mean, um, there were never like editorial disputes or, you know, there wasn't any meddling when I was at food safety news but like the appearance of having a law firm own a publication is, is, is tough. And like, you know, we see it now with like, we, we have Jeff Bezos owning the Washington post. Like we have now, um, you know, a German company that owns business insider and morning brew and Politico. And like, there's, you know, it is not, none of this is simple. Right. And, and it gets messy. I think the, the more you, um, have it's not necessarily problems with independence but just the per, any of the perceptions around media not being um, independent it's really hard and yet it's so hard to cre- create business models that really keep media independent so i i just i i understand why all of these um entities are cropping up because it, there's just not enough coverage there's a total hole and it makes sense but there are a lot of downsides too and um you know, one of the models I think is really interesting is the nonprofit model. However, like we just saw what happened with the counter, um, they couldn't sustain. And I don't know if it's that they didn't have a enough diversity in their, you know, in the um, donors that they had. It sounds like that was the case. I mean, that's also problematic. And also, who were the donors, right? So this this media is such a weird sector in that, like, it has to have a business model to survive, right? It, you can't just like do this out of the goodness of your own heart, it's like anything, you have to have the resources to do it, but you also need to be independent. It's a really, um, it's a really important sector in the role that it plays in our society. And yet I just think there's so, there's so far to go in terms of like keeping media as an institution, like broadly, which is strong and independent. I just, we are not in a good place right now. You know, I don't Sharon that answers or, your question, but no, I mean, it, these are just yeah. like
1: really important musings for our listeners, you know, who come to this podcast wondering, like, how does change happen? Do I need to have hope? And I feel like we are not doing enough to understand the complex landscape of journalism and how it links into social change. And some people think of social change like policy change. So I think we can talk about the role your reporting has played on Congress. But I also yeah. am happy that you're helping folks to understand that the entire system within which reporters are doing their work is also falling apart. And Sharon Lerner, for example, who was in season one, Talked about everything it took for her to be able to do the investigative reporting she did on toxics at the Intercept. It took tons of time. Yeah, it took her independently resourcing herself to pay her bills so that she could do the storytelling mm-hmm. and have a publication who would allow her the space for. I think she said her article was like. You know, double-digit pages, which there's not really space for long-form journalism anymore. People want to tweet. That's what they. That's how they want to be educated. So I'm just, I'm appreciating that you're elevating that, and like, happy to segue into, like, why does media matter at Congress? Why can we not pass bills if there aren't good journalists?
0: Yeah, I mean, I do think that the. the basic accountability function is, is huge. Um, we actually just, um, recently saw FDA release a like, uh, after action report on how they handled the infant formula, um, situation. And I just, uh, skimmed the document before I hopped on with you and it's extremely vague, right? But i will have more analysis to come on that, but that document, that reflection that FDA is having on its handling of this was largely driven by my reporting and others saying like, look, here's the timeline, right? This was a five month timeline from when, you know, infants started reporting, um, being hospitalized to when this was recalled. And then all of the aftermath, I mean, there was a lot of, um, miss signals. There was a lot of, um, a lot of delay that has still not been fully explained. And we wouldn't know that. If it were not for the media, like we, we would have just had a, a government agency say, you know, this is, this is a recall. And, you know, we, would we just wouldn't have had, I think as much of the, um, the detail we wouldn't have had, um, you know, there's been some, some plant employees, some former, uh, employees who have spoken out through the media. Um, and you know, that, that role of the whistleblower, I think is crucial and, and really goes hand in hand often with the role of the media, just like, you know, that, that whole saying that sunlight, sunlight is the strongest disinfectant. And I see that very, very clearly, like putting things out in open air is just an essential function. It's an essential function. And, um, it's, it's something that we need more of across like every, every topic, right? It's not just food that that needs more of that. Um, it's just, it's part of how these systems are supposed to work. It's how government gets better at doing their job. Hopefully that should be the goal, right? Is that we're pushing these agencies to do better, to do the jobs that we expect them to do as taxpayers and consumers. And so- I mean, I think the role is just just really essential. But going to your back to your point about resources, um, it it is, I think, a real uh, challenge for not just you know report, staff reporters, but also freelance reporters to have the resources to do that type of really in depth work. Um, I did a a series on um, climate science in the Trump administration that we won a bunch of awards for, and I think it was like a nine month project. And, um, you know, part of why I was able to do that is because we had three other like really solid reporters on food and ag that could sort of handle more of the day to day and like keep, you know, we are serving subscribers and the public. And so we have to stay on top of things, right? So you can't just like abandon all news and focus on this one thing. And that's often what you have to do for investigative stuff. Like you need to go tunnel vision and really focus on it and, Those things are kind of at odds, right? The tension of like serving the daily audience and then um, doing that that in depth work are are kind of at odds, and so it's a big problem. And and I also think in the freelance world, especially if you do not, this is like peeling back even more. There's a lot of writers and reporters and so on that like have a lot of family resources, and that's why they're able to, to. I'm not saying that about this. Person, I don't know anything about it, but that this is something you find, right. Is that the ability to, um, spend months on, on a project that might not pay very much or might, you know, just might not make sense financially. That is in some ways, like a privilege and a luxury that, um, that we don't always talk about or recognize. And it really shades, I think the types of, of, um, stories that get covered. And it's a real, um, it's a real challenge. I mean, the economics of spending months on a story, um, don't, don't work out well for most freelancers. I can tell you that Now having just learned a little bit about how that all works, like it is, a uh, a really, um, a really tough setup, I think. Can we
1: talk a little bit about the investigative process? Like what, tell me a little bit about like what, you did to kind of go into the infant formula debacle, we're calling it, the agreed upon term, and really understand what was going on and and the process of communi- rendering all of that into a form that you can communicate to the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of phone calls, a lot of text messages and emails and talking to folks on background or often like off the record, who you know, maybe people are not authorized to talk about the situation, but can help you fill in like where are your blind spots, right? So I think that's one of the hardest things about doing these types of in-depth stories is is like, what, what can you not see, right? Like what are, what are the, what are the blind spots you just don't have sourcing to fill you in on, or maybe you don't have the documents you need and Trying to round that out and get as much of a 360-degree view as you can is really hard and takes a ton of legwork. Um, in the infant formula situation, it was a lot of um you know, tracking people down who I knew would have some insight. And I that's also one of the benefits of being focused on an issue for a long time, is like I kind of know who, who to call at this point. Um, but still it, it was difficult because infant formula is so concentrated. There just aren't that many, there aren't that many people in, in that world. And for sure, there aren't that many people that focus on like infant formula, like food safety. It's just a very, very small, um, it's a small, it's like a, a niche within a niche, right. But just happens to be very, very important. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of legwork, um, you know, to talking to States, um, filling in the holes however you can. Um, and it, with that story too, and going back to issues kind of being seen as like a, a woman's issue or like a, a, I don't know, just watching how little press coverage there was of the infant formula situation in the months leading up to really when the shortage hit um, mainstream press. I mean, I think that was, a real demonstration of, you know, choices that were made to that, you know, folks, editors, maybe just didn't think it was important, but you could see like parents thought it was important, right? Millions of people raising little ones like thought, oh my gosh, this is like really, really urgent. And I think sometimes there's just a mismatch between like consumer interest, reader interest, and maybe like the gatekeeping around, an issue like that. Right. And that wasn't our issue at Politico to be clear, but, um, I certainly think that was an issue at other places in terms of just not, not thinking it was like a a mainstream national story, which it absolutely was like from day one. So when you're talking about,
1: so I'm wondering the moment for you, because you, We've already acknowledged that journalism plays a key role in government accountability, whether it's an agency that's not doing their job or it's a legislator who's taking a kickback from a certain company and that's driving their policy advocacy. For you as a journalist, realizing that you might burn a bridge, like you have your person you call at the FDA and you realize you're about to slam the FDA in an article and knowing that that contact might not take your call like how do you navigate those interpersonal relationships when you have to tell hard truths
0: such a such a good question and it's it's not an easy thing to do but what i find is that if you are straightforward with people about tough stories, and if you are clear with them about what's going to be in the story, like you do not blindside them, right? Like you are clear, like this is a hard story for you. And this is what it says. And they have a chance to respond and be in that. I find that it's fine. Like they will, they might hate the story. They might, they might really hate the story, but like week goes by, two weeks go by, they're talking to you again. It's okay, um, but the, you know, you're the. It's hard because you want to keep your sources, of course, people who are like helpful in giving you information. But like, you are not a reporter uh, to make everyone happy, to make friends with everyone, right? That that's not. I mean, you want to be respected and you want to be seen as someone who's fair and who is going to listen to like the other side. Maybe it's someone's defense of a situation. They think that you are not, um, you know, you think they maybe think that the story is like unfair to them and you make sure to get in their perspective. like this is what they argue. This is their defense here. and that's important. And I think that's one of the key differences between, journalism and advocacy is like when you're in advocacy like you do not have to care at all about and that's like a different role. I'm not saying there's not a very important role for that, but it's just different, right? And so having to deal with all these different constituencies and voices and competing interests is just part of the job and but my personal experience is if you are straightforward with people and you are honest about what's coming even when they're going to hate it, um folks generally understand that that's you doing your job. Um doesn't mean they might not yell at you or, you know, say they hate a headline or push back a little bit, but that's just all part of the the that's just comes with the job, comes with the territory.
1: How has your work shifted post Trump? I mean, never before have we had a president squarely aim his power as a kind of like discourse setter on media and journalism. And I can imagine that working as an investigated journalist in these times feels different. Like, can you talk a little bit about the transition through the Trump administration and like how your feelings about your work has changed
0: yeah i mean the term fake news getting popularized um it certainly comes up like i you know i go to family gatherings or um i recently went to my my grandmother's memorial and i got um you know i had to answer a lot of questions about fake news and whether or not we really had an insurrection and just you know there's a there is a lot of um kind of polluted information environments that people are in like they are truly in an information environment that tells them like all you know media is not to be trusted and like you know everyone's just out to get you and you know this is all Propaganda. I mean, there's just so much um, vitriol towards the quote mainstream press, and in some ways, that has made things more. To- they just sh- certainly made things more toxic. There's no question about that. Like, I would go to particularly rural um, communities. You just have a lot more questions about who you are, why you're there. There's just a lot more guardedness. But I actually. I think that a lot of that is driven by the collapse of local media. And I think the mistrust goes way further back than um, former President Trump. I think what Trump saw was that this was ripe to exploit, right? That there was a growing mistrust in the media. And part of that is like, if you think about what has happened to media um, with local news news failing or being greatly, greatly diminished, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm from Seattle originally. There's like, there used to be two papers. Now there's like one paper and it's like a shadow of its former self, right? So as, as papers shrink and contract, fewer people in your community actually know a reporter, have any contact with the media. This is just not, Um, part of your community. And then the media you see is like beamed back to you from New York and DC, which like doesn't necessarily reflect the issues in your community or like how you're living your life, or maybe it just seems kind of far away. And so I think all of that dynamic that is very much driven by economics and like the business environment we're in made us so primed to to take to like, for that criticism to land, right. And for it to really resonate with a portion of the country. And one of the ways I cut through that on the ground with people who maybe be totally distrust media, think that, you know, cable news can't be trusted unless it's Fox and so on is I find common ground with them. And I talk about the places where, you know, the, the criticism I have of of media. Like, you know, I'm part of the media, but I don't just, I don't defend everything just like knee jerk. And I think that that gives some common ground to be like, okay, you know, what, what can we talk about here? And like, I think where you have to draw really firm lines though, is like, there's certain things that where facts are facts, right? Like you can't compromise on that, but you can compromise on like, you know what, sometimes the tone of cable news is really condescending. I agree with you sometimes, you know, we don't need more newscasters from New York. Like that's fine. I can agree with you on that. That's not reflective of the country. And I, that's one way I have found personally that you can sort of connect past that, but it is, um, it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge. And, And I did not start having to explain fake news at like family events that, that, that's something that was new during the Trump administration, right? Like fake news. Like, are you part of the fake news? I mean, that's just a normal thing to have to talk about now. That's definitely new. It's
1: interesting. I was just at a family wedding. I feel like white folks in the United States are grappling with this reality that we all have family that are a part of the culture that gave rise to Donald Trump. Um, Maybe in a way that people of color have less of that and family reunions are becoming this weird time where we have to test the Brene Brown in all of us to forge into the wilderness of misunderstanding. And so too, I mean, I'm an environmental activist. I've dedicated my entire life to trying to better understand how climate change happened and how we're going to save something in the midst of it. And so I just really want to honor like that for a lot of us we're trying to work out these strategies in our lives right now and we're trying to understand like How do we maintain connection with people we deeply, deeply disagree with or who mistrust the work that we do as a part of some narrative of like overarching liberal coast conspiracy? So I just want to
0: carve out that moment. I, You know, I think so much of this is also wrapped up into the like pulling apart of like the urban rural divide and sort of like what role that has played in this polarization. Um and it's, I don't know how you fix that or make it better, but it is, it is, um, I think it plays a huge role here. Cause a lot of if you listen to um what particularly rural voters uh might say about the media or about government or about big corporations, a lot of that um populism kind of comes from a place of uh feeling disenfranchised or or that like they 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 can't relate to a lot of the 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 media and the leadership and the politics that are projected back at them. So that on one hand is very understandable what I think is really hard is when you get to issues like systemic racism or these topics where human rights are coming into the play and how do you, how do you disagree respectfully on some of these human rights issues? I mean that that's where it gets really like, you know, I don't know that a lot of folks have figured out how to how to navigate through that. Um, it's it's a, certainly a challenge, but I think things are probably going to get a lot more divided before we figure that out. I don't know if that's kind of dark.
1: Know, I had this moment, and granted, I and producing a podcast called the hero's journey. And like, I'm a, just every cell in my body is optimistic. And I have to believe that we're in the birth canal right now and it's painful, but something's going to come of all of this. And it it does feel really hard, but I had this moment this summer at this wedding, very rural, Rural North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, and Wisconsin folks at this wedding. And I had read my Renee Brown Braving the Wilderness and thought about her thesis, which is that we have to come back to community to start and like figure out like what do we have in common? And like I just found it funny that this aunt and uncle have stopped talking because they're on. Uh, either sides of the trump question. And all we could talk about safely was our dogs. But I thought to myself, like back <laughs> to your point about pet food, like maybe there's a there there that has nothing to do like maybe we just have to start with like remembering that we love each other and like we love our dogs and have that good like I think social media has made us feel close when we're actually quite far apart right now. And COVID meant we're not coming together and we're not sitting around the table and like trying to figure out where the olive branches can come out. And I agree there are certain things that are not a debate and it is about rights and facts. But I don't know if we can get into that deep space of changing ourselves and changing others if we strip out like we got to laugh together and yeah yeah like. So I, it it feels like fucking flighty, but I still feel it. Like we need to bring joy back in, interpersonal joy and connection around things that we love, and from that base, we can figure out who we might be able. Like because I'm desperate to understand, like how. Folks can listen to the Trump news channel, whatever his medium is, and like believe
0: that that's reality. I think it's, I think it's one of those things too, where if you think about a time when you changed your mind about something, or if you changed your preconceived notion about someone or some type of person, thinking about what that was like, it's usually like spending time with them or um, talking directly to, to them or yeah, having lunch with someone. You were like, wow, I've never actually had a long conversation with someone who held these views. I, I actually think that's really, really important, even when you can't in any way compromise on the the things we were just talking about. But that is, I think, where I've gotten the most like understanding and sort of um, clarity around just where folks are coming from, even when they might be in an extremely polluted polluted like media environment, right? Um, I think it's important to to still be able to have those conversations. like, I actually am one of those people who think that you should talk about politics at Thanksgiving because if you can't talk about politics at Thanksgiving, that's like kind of a problem, right? That means that like, your family can't talk about things that are like hard or that might, they might disagree about. And so I don't know. That's, that's where I'm at on that. On. And I have a lot of varying views in my own family um, and my extended family. So I don't, it's a tough one. It's really tough. I think we're in a tough era where the the volumes really, really turned up on these extreme ends and and that makes it really, really hard. Yeah, I don't know the answer.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is in some ways a huge part of the what we have to figure out question. And I just appreciate the way this conversation is woven because I personally go back to, we're also not training people and students To just understand. Like when I was in undergrad, I was never told like, read Plato and tell me if he's right. It was like, what does Plato think? And why does he think that? And can you locate Plato in a time and place? And what are the legacies of Plato's thinking today? So just the ability to listen and try to learn even if it feels
0: hard and not applicable. Um, yeah, it's, it's such a tough one too, because I feel like we're so far into this. We're so far into this polarization that it, it almost, it's not too late. It's not, but like, it feels almost like you you need to have that conversation about understanding, like I understand where you're coming from, and also the election wasn't stolen, right? Because we live <laughs> in a democracy and we have to believe in our electoral system, which by the way is locally controlled, and I think we all see the wisdom in that, right? Because it's locally controlled so that you can't, like on a national level, just, just change an election outcome, right? So it's hard, because you have to come from a a place of understanding and community and some sort of common connection and then you also have to just be like literally the election wasn't stolen like the facts are the fact and that and that and that's like a hard that's a really hard thing right now and I don't know that we're doing a great job as a country like having that conversation so yet yet and, and you know, I, I really I just, appreciate your
1: optimism. Yeah. Well, I don't, I actually don't know a way out of the birth canal. I, honestly, I think about this because we can't solve the climate crisis, for example, if we're still debating whether there's a climate crisis. And so,
0: and even, well, with you know, the, I don't know. I've spent a lot of time with very conservative um, farmers who, very much acknowledge that the climate is changing they may not even actually buy into that it's um greenhouse, greenhouse. gases right co2 they, they may not even buy into that but they know they are they are on board that like the weather's getting more extreme they're seeing you know more frequent droughts and floods and you know extreme stuff and they are the folks that i've spent a lot of time with are willing to do adaptation and mitigation and are willing to work on things, even without agreeing on the cause. And that is a really interesting place. And I think there's a lot of environmental groups that work in the ag space that have gotten very comfortable. They're like, you know what, even if you can't convince um, a specific grower that like, this is the science and this is what it says, like there are things that you can agree on and like just start working on those. Um, And I'm seeing a lot of that happening and you actually are seeing particularly, particularly farmer sentiment around climate change. They are shifting to acknowledging a changing climate slowly, but they really are shifting. And so that is an interesting question of like, do you, do you have to agree on all of the basic science and sort of the facts of the situation? Do you have to agree to move forward? I don't know. That might be one of the examples where um, there's some room to to work on policy and like land use and different things where, where you might not agree, but. We had this, and
1: I know we're almost out of time. We had this... Um top secret, we called it Ranchers Anonymous, conversations in Hawaii with the ranching community around regenerative grazing and the critical role it plays in climate mitigation uh, through soil carbon sequestration. And we brought together environmentalists, like some of the world's top cattlemen who are teaching, professing the art of high density rotational grazing and these local ranchers who are all, at least in Hawaii, very conservative leaning. And it was a moment like this where it was like. There's a long history of deep division between conservationists and cattlemen, and there is a ton of reason for active distrust. And yet there's this shared new fascination from foodies and ranchers that this practice Mm -hmm. is good for all of us. You get better meat, you get healthier meat, you get better environment, you get better yields. It's like win, 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 win. And I found that at these ranchers anonymous meetings, which is what we call them, they were like, I "I
0: love that title, by the
1: way, (laughs) like. They were like, we'll never tell anybody we were ever here. Yeah. Yeah. But let's work on some stuff together. And so we were able to pass a soil carbon task force in Hawaii. We were able to build like the first broad-based coalition on agriculturally driven carbon sequestration strategies for the state, state of Hawaii. So
0: I agree. That's interesting. I, I, you know, that's, that's very similar. What you were describing is very similar to what they've done in Nebraska, for example. Yeah. Yeah. It
1: it starts like, it starts with human beings, like getting together and like, yes, I agree. It's not, not talking about politics at Thanksgiving. I think it's showing up less to talk and more to listen Mm -hmm. and like coming in with this interest of like deep fascination. Like I wanted to know, like do you guys high density rotational graze? And like, have you been tracking right. soil carbon? And like, what are you learning? And mm-hmm. would you be willing to put some monitors on your farm? And what if we were able to get some money?
0: To, you know, and it was like, let's just start there. Yeah. And right, right, right. You can't just come in, which a lot of reporters do. They're coming and they're like, why do you support Trump? You can't start there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's like they're a circus animal. Like, I don't understand. You know what I mean? Yes. I think you're right. That's oftentimes where, where folks want to start. You can't start there. It's my, in my experience. Well, so interesting ranchers anonymous would be like a great title for like a book or something. Great. Or article and food fix. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you just said they weren't going to admit that they participated. Off the record.
1: I mean, again, I, I do believe that in this depraved media landscape, and it's part of the reason why we started this podcast and we think this storytelling is so important, is we're only talking about division and we're only featuring extremes. And like there needs to be more stories around like how people are learning, how people are winning, how they're changing their strategies, how they got to where they're going, so that we have more perceptions of the possible. Um, And certainly there are a lot of people who don't understand how critical the role that media plays in all of this work. So I just really appreciate your ability to shine light on that in this conversation around your work, because I think as a collective, we need to figure out how to invest more. In a robustly diverse media, whatever that looks like, you know, whether it's a nonprofit model or it's a pay-to-read, you know, like we got to yeah, figure it some, out. And
0: there are some really interesting models cropping up. The nineteenth nineteenth News is really interesting, based out of Texas. There's, but it's got to be broad-based. Whatever it is, it has to be very broad-based. It has to have that, I think, at its at its core, but um yeah i well i think i there is definitely a bias in media towards the negative right it's towards conflict it's towards you know what is what is the new clash what is the new fight that is definitely um a a focus, right? And so I think it is true that a lot of the like good news stories, a lot of the feel good, a lot of the places where people are working together and are, are not covered. And I think there, there probably is a lot more um, optimism to be had in those stories, right? Because um, we have study after study after study that shows the more you consume media, um, the more anxious you are, uh, the more physical stress symptoms you have. I mean, this is very well documented. So it's also a plug to anyone who is, you know, spending too much time scrolling Twitter at night, like take the app off your phone, uh, like find times to be completely offline. So, so important. And I say that as someone who like has to be online a fair amount for their job. So finding that finding sanity amid all of this is really important. That's a, that's a positive note to end there on. There you are. Yeah, I
1: think that's a great note to end on.
0: Um,
1: I really appreciate your time today amidst all the home parenting chaos that we're both within. The Hero's Journey is brought to you by the Center for Food Safety. Production by Julia Rani and Ashley Lukens. Editing and social media by Amanda Lillabridge, duration Shin, and Annalisa Camacho. Theme song by Walker Lukens and Adam Mason, and audio engineering by Adam Mason. You can find us across all podcast platforms and follow us at Center for Food Safety on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and CFS True Food on Twitter. We're on the web at theheroesjourneypodcast.com. Do you have a hero you'd like to see on the podcast? Fill out the form in the show notes or email us at theheroesjourneypod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, like and subscribe, and make sure you'll never miss an episode. We'll see you in a few weeks.